All right, here we go. Rants with Justin and Joe. Joe. 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 Welcome to Rants with Justin and Joe. So today uh, we are honored to have two superstars in the field. Uh, when Joe and I decide the schedule, I mean, quite honestly, we want to pick people that we want to talk with. And so we don't really think about audience members at all, but we know the audience would love, uh, love this. So we have uh, Dr. White and, right, sorry, and Dr. Fong uh, with us today, and they're going to introduce themselves in a minute, uh, but Joe gets to get, go through all the logistics this year. So Joe, take it away. Sure, sure. Uh, well, we we really like this to be an open discussion and, and not really you know, like uh, planned out. Uh, so we like the discussion to flow, um, which is why the title of this one, I think, was like cultural humility and related topics, <laughs> to leave it very vague, to, to really let uh, the that you two drive the discussion and the questions help drive the discussion. Um, so we encourage everyone who's listening to this live uh, to ask questions and you can do that in two different ways. Uh, there's a chat box that you can send questions to the panelists uh, or you can use the Q&A function, which I suggest you using uh, because it pops up for us a little easier. And when the chat gets going, it's hard to keep track of those questions. And it allows you to ask questions anonymously. So if you, if you don't necessarily feel comfortable with putting your name behind your question, that's totally fine. Ask anonymously in the, in the Q&A. And we will make sure that we, we bring that into the uh, and as uh, Justin said, rants are always free, uh, whether you're catching it live or catching it with the recorded podcast. Uh, so uh, enjoy. Uh, but if you want CEUs, uh, you can purchase those at autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Uh, all you need to do is put in the opening and closing words, which we'll give you, add the rant to your cart and answer the, the question about the keywords and it's yours. I'm going to put this in the chat box for everyone who's here live. Um, right now. Um, so the opening word is equitable. Uh, I hope that I pronounced that right. I always mess up that word. Uh, and I think it varies depending on where you are in the nation too, how you pronounce that. But uh, we're very generous with how you spell things. So if you are listening to this on the podcast, uh, feel comfortable knowing that you don't necessarily have to spell it because I'm an awful speller. Uh, so I like to, to be sensitive to that in others. So I think that's all the logistics. Justin, did I miss anything? I'm glad I'm glad I'm not needing CUs because I don't think I would get even close. It'd be like an E and like a squiggly line and, and something Some like hieroglyphics that. Some hieroglyphics and wingdings. I'm uh, No, so one thing we've learned and we take audience feedback pretty seriously here is we know who you two are. We'd hope some of the listeners at least know who you are, but we've gotten feedback that it'd be good if you guys can just give like a one minute introduction of who you are and, and so the audience knows better. So either one of you can go first. Liz, you go. I was gonna say you go. <laughs> so, this is uh, very similar to our email exchange. I know. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, my name is Liz Fong. I'm located in the Philadelphia area. However, I am the Associate Director of the Online MS ABA program for Pepperdine University. In 2011, I founded the Multicultural Alliance of Behavior Analysts, which has since rebranded as the Culture and Diversity SIG. Um, so I've had long-standing interest in these topics, and I'm really happy to be invited to be here with you guys. Hi, I'm Patricia Wright, and I'm located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, because uh, Justin and Joe wanted to make sure that we were in the same state, even though we're on other sides of it. So that's awesome. So you're talking to people from uh, across the state, but in the same state. And uh, I am an educator by training, kind of as my initial um, interest in this field, and it's how I still identify is as a teacher, and then always for individuals with autism. and. Um, I became interested in this because I started working in cultures that were really different from my own and I was failing. Um, and that was about 30 years ago, 25 years ago. And so I just started digging in to try to learn about culture, cultural humility. And then I also trained as a, as a public health professional. And it's just more prevalent there when we talk about social determinants of health. So later on in my career, I started to get trained and of course, read Liz's work from, um, I think she was one of the first people that started talking about this aspect. And here we are today with lots of us talking about it, which is fantastic. Well, I'm very happy. Thank, thank you for, for the intros, because like Justin said, we bring people on just out of um, our own interests. And so we know you, um, but sometimes other people don't get to know you. Um, so um, thank you for those introductions. Uh, and so I guess we'll get it, we'll get the ball rolling uh, and see if we can get you two talking some. Uh, I, so I think um, there's more and more people that are getting interested in this. And I think a lot of that has to do with, with the work of you two and, and some of the publications. I think, um, Liz, your 2013 paper, uh, if that's what Pat was referring to, um, I, I don't know if there are any other ones that came before that, but please let me know. Uh, but given that there's a lot of people that are getting interested in this, I think there's these terms like cultural competence and cultural humility that are being thrown around. Uh, but I, I think some people don't have a strong uh, understanding of the potential differences between those or what they actually mean. So I wanted to give you both a, an opportunity to speak to um, cultural competence and cultural humility. Yeah, I, I'm, to be honest with you, I, I like that people are talking about both of those concepts because I think they're well represented in the literature uh, and especially cultural competence. I think, you know, Liz has really dug in and done some of that work and talked about the history. And I think, you know, I think everyone who is addressing cultural competence and cultural humility is after the same get, you know, they're after the ability, they want to be able to be more capable in their practice. And that's something that I just want to commend anyone for doing. Um, I prefer the term cultural humility. Um, I certainly use resources that reflect cultural competence. And for me, it's cultural humility was you know, kind of coined in 1998. And I think I like it because it focuses more on what my behavior is supposed to be doing around my personal self-reflection, my understanding of power and balance, all of those things versus, um, you know, I've mastered this checklist because I'm just never going to master it. And so I really like the concept of humility because it just implies that I am responsible forever for engaging in this work. And I think, um, but again, I certainly don't want to devalue all the work that's been done in cultural competence and all of the, the benefit we have from that, that work. 
I don't know, Liz, what's, I mean, when you, you talk about this too. I'd love to hear what you say. So I, I like the concept of cultural humi humility because it talks about a lifelong process. So, you know, do we ever reach a level where we're culturally competent? Some of us may, some of us may not. But um, when you think of cultural humi humility, it really is like a process. And I think that this is a lot of what the journey has been, at least for me, where I can see some of the steps that lead a person to be culturally competent. I have some awareness that, that there are differences and similarities between different groups. And I try to take the time to um, reflect on my own culture, my own values, and that of my client. But um, I'm in agreement with you, Pat, about the term cultural humi humility. And I've really seen a change in the literature, not just in behavior analysis, but in general, where we're going through, through from, um, we want to be culturally competent to we acknowledge that this is a process that we may never completely master. Yeah, and I think that's so interesting from the field of behavior analysis too is, you know, we all love our checklists. Um, <laughs> we love our competency checks and we love all these things. Like it's so easy for pe people and people will just come in and say, well, like, how do I make sure everyone's, you know, mastered this? And I'm like, well, you don't, you don't really master this. Like it's just, I mean, I, I, it's so funny because it's not like we shouldn't develop checklists. And that's actually something I'm really interested in is how do you teach cultural humility? How do you put this into applied settings? But part of cultural humility is that you just kind of, in some ways you make ongoing mistakes that you reflect on, you know? And so, and that is part of, you know, it's so uncomfortable. So, you know, I identify as white. And when I make cultural mistakes, I was logging on. I just mispronounced a woman's name that I certainly should have. Um, Malika and I was like, oh, that was a little embarrassing. And I would not have mispronounced that name. I don't didn't mis mispronounce Jill or Justin's because those names are familiar to me. And so instead of like kind of pushing that down and being like, oh gosh, there it goes. It's like, oh no, and I get to now I get to own it and tell a story about it. And that's part of me being humble is now because that's a bit punishing for me to say that out loud. And I'll do a better job of hopefully understanding pronunciation of unfamiliar names. In the future that are often not cultural of my own culture. So, you know, I just think that that part is, it's like we, from behavior analysts, we want to be able to say, everybody's mastered this. I've mastered this. I can do this through BST. And I think that's why it's a little bit uncomfortable to talk about uh, from a humility perspective. And I think you make a great point about checklists and wanting um, to master concepts, but it's hard because we don't have any guidelines right now, like nothing is coming explicitly from our field saying, this is what the guidelines are. This is what it means to be, you know, culturally competent. This is how to work with diverse populations. What we're seeing right now is really a lot of growth in the area of, of from clinicians who want to address this topic. And I think that we're all in the process together of trying to understand how does this impact us as clinicians and how does this impact the people that we work with and our clients and whoever else that might be. And Elizabeth, you did a nice job, I think, in, in your publications about crossing, talking about it from different social, other social service models. And I think that's the other piece sometimes, you know, as, as every field, but particularly I think where it's the nature of behavior analysis, like we want our own, we want our own, like, no, that's anthropology, that's whatever, like we want our own. And so, but I also think that there's a lot of other fields that we could lean on that have done so much work and you're trained as a, as a psychologist as well as a behavior analyst. And so you have a guiding principle from that field. I have my guiding principles from public health. So I think that some of the reasons we feel a bit more comfortable is like, oh, I can lean on my other field to talk about this. But I don't know, I just also think that we could also learn a lot from the other fields. I so. Man, there's a lot to, un 
unpack there. I, I think that was great. Uh, I, I was taking notes and I'm not one who usually takes that many notes. So <laughs> that was beautiful. Uh, first, I have to say, I love the humility part of it. I mean, you two are, as I said, superstars, leaders in this particular area and just the humbleness that you guys approach it. I think that should really be emulated across every behavior analyst at this point. So I do appreciate that. I also love that you guys talked about it as a process because it's uh, something that my graduate students hear all the time. Um, everything, it's a process, get comfortable with the process. Um, and, and whenever they're stressed out or think they should be further ahead, I always talk about, well, just go back to the process and, and that kind of stuff. Um, I wonder, and I agree with you because I could go so many directions with the guidelines and there's growth, but there's not real guidelines to it. And, and your experience with other fields, I, I mean, I might dive into that a little uh, later or Joe might, but where do you guys, if you guys are with younger behavior analysts, those who are wanting to become BCBAs or those who are newly minted BCBAs or those who are even older and are interested in this now, where do you guys like, how do you start the process with them? How how, how do they go about starting this process? And I know they have to make mistakes and, and realize it, but what can they do proactively, I guess, to start that process? That's an interesting question to me because right now I feel like the younger, newer behavior analysts are guiding me. Like I'm learning so much from the Facebook posts that I'm seeing or the different organizations that are popping up and I'm learning and listening and reading. And um, I think that, that they're on the right track. I feel like just being open and understanding that there needs to be some changes within our field is is the right place to, to start. And the self-reflection that I'm seeing also in these posts. So I don't know if I can tell you where to go. I feel like it's a joint process. Yeah, and I think too, the, the I, virtually anything around cultural engagement starts with your own identity, right? Because it's your own your own identity and your own bias. And I feel like the current identity movements of you know black lives matter being probably the most prevalent for me it's like oh let's let's go learn from that you know let's go learn from the identity movements that have all, that are already trying to change policy practice you know behavior around things that are so monumental in our society and uh, cuz i just think that that part that's again you know listening and learning is being able to look at some of these um, you know, identity issues that are so prevalent and so, you know, really big complex issues and I love it. I think that's a wonderful response to a difficult question, you know, because I, I, I'm imagining the process is a little bit different for each person and their starting point is going to be different depending on the repertoire that they come in with or the community that um, they've been raised in. Uh, so I think it's, it's difficult to ask like, or answer what is the starting point. Um, but I, I love the emphasis on the process because unfortunately I've run into people that have used, well, I'll never, never become competent in all cultures as a reason to not become culturally aware or, or um, culturally competent, or at least try to develop the repertoires that would be necessary to even identify their own biases. So I love the emphasis on the process because I think it helps eliminate that as an excuse to you know, be culturally unaware or, or uh, insensitive. You know, I don't know if you've run into that at all. I think sometimes people are overwhelmed, you know, because they think that part of it is like, I'm supposed to, um, 
I'm supposed to become aware and competent of all cultures, right? And uh, one of my huge heroes is Paul Farmer. And he wrote a book called Pathologies of Power. And uh, I think for me, it's like, just like, that's the base, right? Like any type of cultural, any type of interaction, you have to figure out what the power imbalance is. And that's where, I mean, you know, with privilege comes power and with all of those things. So that's, I think about that, Joe, it's like, you know, I'm not, I'm never going to be confident. I identify as cisgendered, identify as a woman. Um, I'm, I'm never going to be confident in maleness. Like I'm really, in some ways it's completely like most of my friends are women. Most of my community's women, I'm married to a woman, you know, so like, I'm never going to be confident in that, but that doesn't mean that I shouldn't you know, read a male voice or engage in listening to when men are engaged with each other or when men engage with other women. Um, so I just think that that I think it's really uh, thoughtful. I haven't heard that that people shouldn't. I think that people should assume they're not going to become confident. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then it's like, okay, the then what? So I, I'm still going to be treating male patients. I'm still going to be engaging with, you know, male colleagues. That doesn't mean I get to be like, well, I don't know, that's just those men. Although. So, <laughs> and I actually haven't heard so much that people are resistant to trying to become more culturally competent. But what I found early on um, was that people feel that behavior is universal, so that we don't have to address cultural differences when we're creating a behavior plan. That the behavior is, you know, what it is. And for me, what made me get interested in looking at culture and behavior analysis is that I was working in an urban setting and everything that I was learning in my Cooper book or in my class, I had a difficult time applying. You know, when these schools and these kids are under-resourced and they can't sleep at night because of violence in their home and I'm supposed to put a behavior plan in place, how do I not take into account all these different variables that the, you know, the kids at this time were, um, experiencing and to me that was more than just setting events it was really like just getting your needs met how do i look at like maslow's hierarchy of needs which comes from psychology and then apply that to behavior analysis and build out from there well and liz does, let me just ask you a question about that because i think about like you also are a researcher you're an established researcher you're teaching other people to be practitioners and researchers and when you think about like that term that you just that the behaviors universal cultural blindness or you know is when you're reading your things from your Cooper book or any publication, we're also, we were not trained to read that publication or this wasn't even there as some of the researchers have said and go, oh, all of that, though, all of those subjects were white. They all had two parent families. They all lived in a socioeconomic status above 100%, 200% above the mean of, you know, of our society. And they were in a highly trained clinic getting treatment from a PhD level behavior analysts. And so like as researchers, we, as I mean, as practitioners, we weren't even taught to read the research in that light. And so then we go out and we think like, well, why isn't this working in, in your case, maybe, um, you know, environment of Philadelphia that you just described, do you know? And so I just think it's yeah. so curious. And the, like, book, and the cover book is great. And it gave me a great foundational knowledge and a basis to then generalize the information and apply it to new and novel settings. Um, but I think that behavior analysis still is not reporting demographic area or demographic information in our literature, and that would really help. And the social validity is also not consistently being reported. And I know social validity is kind of a gray area, just like microaggressions and some of these other topics that we're hearing about. But I think we need to 
be more comfortable with being uncomfortable and then learn to discuss these topics or bring them up to make them more normal. Yeah, I think it's an excellent point. There was that um, a reporting of demographic variables in Java that just came out and we have a, a lot of room for improvement. Um, and same with the social validity as uh, Julia Ferguson, I think she's here, did a review of social validity in Java. And it's, you know, it had the same results of the previous review of Java that was the same as the previous review of Java in terms of social validity. And I think both of you have, have written about the importance of social validity, but I feel like sometimes people uh, view like those the seven dimensions or social validity as a research related thing and not necessarily in practice. So I think it doesn't uh, translate to practice as frequently as it does to research and it's not happening at much in research anyways. Yeah. And I mean, it's, again, it's, it's simplistic, but also like the social significance, right? So it's like, that's, that's a, that's such a powerhouse term in our field. And then what is, what is truly socially significant? And I mean, we reference Java, but then we also, any, any data you look at across any population that probably all of us work with is uh, entirely North American centric, maybe a few European publications. It's all English, you know, usually even subject selection, it's must be English speaking, family must be English speaking, you know, so we, they just, and I think for me, it's like, that doesn't mean it's bad research, but we have to, context is really important to us. So let's, let's look at the context. And then, and then, and then what, right? Like, given that context, what, do, what are, what are, what's the training that, that, you know, students need to be able to evaluate contextual variables that may need to be different, because yes, this is this really controlled setting with really privileged individuals by our society measures. And now I wanna do it over here. Like, should I expect the same outcomes? What, do I need to go upstream and look at social determinants of health to, to mediate those before I should even expect to do this intervention? Because you can't do this if a kid hasn't eaten in the 18 hours. You just can't. I think it's an excellent point and it, and it really extends to most behavior analytic research, uh, if not all behavior analytic research. And I think um, one thing that I try to um, teach any master students that I come into contact with is you should never expect to be able to pick up a research article and just do the exact same thing that was done and expect the same results, let alone all of the contextual variables you just pointed out, uh, just, just the methodological side. Uh, and then you bring in the demographic piece uh, and then you really shouldn't be expecting the same thing, especially given what the demographics typically look like in our research. I, I wanna say with this, um because we do know about the social validity side from uh, Julia Ferguson doing, I don't know, 700 articles or so and reading every single one. And then Joe and I just having the benefit of on that project kind of helping with the writing. Um, it's, it's incumbent not just upon the researcher, but also the organizations to start accepting that change. I know as a researcher, I mean, there's been several times where we have included social validity data and either the at editor or action editor said, well, let's cut that for space issues uh, and put a little bit more into an experimental design, explain your multiple baseline, which we should all be aware of, or we should just be able to cite Cooper, parent Hewitt or a direct source. So I think with that, I'm in a complete agreement. I think part of the changes we need to make is not just researchers doing it, but having those established uh, 
entities also backing that up and saying, um, yeah, these, these are important. I mean, for me with the social worthy, it's stunning and sad seeing that, you know, Jim Carr, who is big in our field, made the, made the argument that social worthy didn't need to be taken years ago and it still hasn't changed. And Julia is now making that argument and it still hasn't been changed. And so it really needs to be those entities, I think also doing it in my opinion. Well, and there were calls for, um, I completely agree, Justin, there were calls for the um, BACB to adopt the standards that uh, was in, in the FONG and uh, I'm sorry, blanking on your co-author in 2013. Uh, and that was in 2013 and here we are in 2020 approaching 2021 and there hasn't been, I mean, I don't know what's going on there. So maybe there's discussions of um, the development or the adaptation of that. But I think until those contingencies are put into place for our field, it's going to be difficult for us to see these changes that need to happen. I feel like just the, sorry, just the releasing of the demographic information that's been done in the past year by different organizations is like a step one. So maybe they're not ready. These organizations aren't ready to have guidelines because that's a massive undertaking. You probably want to put some thought and research into that and have um, a group of people come to agreement, but just recognizing that um, this, this information is needed and being transparent. And then we could even see as behavior analysts, the disparities with, within the field, you know, what population, um, where are most of the behavior analysts coming from? What type of population? What's their racial background? What is um, the members of ABI as well? And I know that um, ABI now has a task force, I guess a council on diversity, equity, inclusion, which is important. And I think, you know, bias being a part of that council, I'm, I'm interested to see what we can do with that based on what the needs are. Yeah, and I think as a field, like we started where we're comfortable, right? We started with, this is how we count people, right? So, and that, that is our field. Like we, we are, can be pretty reductionist in that way, right? So let's start with counting people. And now we've, we've got that information from our certification body. Um, and that is, I mean, a get response effort, right? So that was, that was huge on their part. And also to put that, to put out data that demonstrates that level of disparity and, right. you know, demonstrates that we've got, you know, some really complex issues of, we overrepresent Latina um, professionals in the, the direct service role and underrepresent in the leadership role. I mean, it's like, those are rough, those are rough numbers to read. Um, so, um, you know, I commend them for putting them out there for people to, to inspect. Um, and I do think then, then it's, you know, again, we like to have that information and I think it is important. Most fields do report their demography. So, um, and then it allows us to try to take action around it. Other organ, other, you know, communities would do it in a, you know, inverted way of let's have groups of people talk about what is important and try to adjust that. So, I mean, I think that, I think it's forward momentum, which is fantastic. Yeah, I, I think it's an excellent point that it's a nice first step. I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on what a, this, a next step might be now that we have hard data um, to support that there is a disparity here. Um, what might a next step be that we could um, either take at a on a larger organizational level or all the way down to the individual level? Oh my gosh! Well, we could adopt Liz's standards. No, I'm just... <laughs> uh, not mine. You <laughs> <Let me> revise. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I think there's been lots of amazing call to actions, right? So it's like some is some professional guidance, some within our professional training so that, you know, you know, and Justin, you just made one about you know, what are the categories of things that we might change within our, our field has a very strong belief around peer reviewed journals, right? We have this very, our science dictates kind of this thing called peer reviewed. It's like, should we be changing those, um, you know, applications for publication so that if, if you don't have a representative sample, if you don't, I mean, it's like, there's a lot of, you could start just like, let's just report it. And then you could start saying like, hey, looks like, looks like you're doing work in a place where 50% of the population is, is black and you have no black subjects. What's going on? You know, so there's, I think that there's some first steps you could take and then there's some steps that are really hard to take. And I think what would be useful is some guidance from the governing organizations about what is acceptable and how are we looking to define this and how do we incorporate these abstract terms into the practice of behavior analysis. And then I think for the different organizations that we're working with, I would want to know, are they putting into practice the idea of cultural cultural humility, humility? You know, are they doing maybe outreach to underserved populations who don't have access to behavior analysts to try to ensure that, that there's a, um, more equity in um, receiving services. And then I think as an individual, I'm trying to continue to learn and grow and figure out what I need to do to adapt with the changing environment or demographics. I don't, and I wrote what I wanted to have a conversation with Liz about too. Like we don't necessarily know, we don't quite know yet how to teach it into our practice or how to modify practices to engage in this. So. You know, we have protocols we follow, which are important. Like this is what a, an FA looks like, or this is what a, you know, and, but how do you adjust and what are the appropriate informative questions when we're asking a pair, doing a parent interview? Or, you know, I'm really interested in trying to figure out how you teach those skills into practitioners and then also how you adapt practices. And I think that would be you know, I, I run these research studies in my head sometimes like, oh, if you did this, would you find out? What would you find out? And um, I think some of the barriers that all of us come across is we want to have these really solid variables. And so then you just don't do anything because you can't quite figure out what that variable is. And, um, and I think we, I need to stop letting that be a inhibitor. I think we as a field need to make, stop that from being an inhibitor, not just you. And right before the Black Lives Matter movement um, really took off, I was interested in working with a colleague where we would investigate microaggressions in RBTs. And I was actually dissuaded from doing that research because um, from some other behavior analysts I was talking to, how do you define a microaggression and how do you observe it? And that's a very difficult question that I didn't know how to put into behavior analytic terms because I don't have one definition. And if I give you examples and non-examples, it's going to be pages and pages and it's not going to be concise enough. So I didn't think that my research in this area would get published. But um, now, now because of the change that I'm seeing from uh, behavior analysts, I'm re-looking at that again and seeing um, how maybe I can go back and look at microaggressions again or a different topic that relates. Um, 
I think Pat, what you were saying is, um, I think teaching this topic is hard to do, but I think other fields of study have multicultural courses. I don't know if you had it in your public I health. I would assume you did. Yeah. So if other disciplines are doing this well, maybe we need to go and learn from them. You know, luckily you and I have had the opportunity to learn from other fields and we can take what we really liked and see how we can apply it to behavior analysis. I would like to see um, diversity and multiculturalism be a requirement in the course content hours and not just under ethics, where I think right now, and, or supervision, that's kind of where this topic is getting put into, but as a separate one to acknowledge the importance of this area. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, Liz, is that it, that it told it's there as a requirement, these universities and courses aren't going to do it. I mean, or, 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 or most of them will smush them into ethics or supervision course or give a reading here and there. It's where it's really driven by certification saying those requirements, this has to be certain hours, then then you'll get more t formal teaching on, on it. And I, I'm, I'm all in favor for that. I'm also in favor post your master's that you make that some CU requirements. And so like right now you have to get three or four hours of supervision and three or four hours of ethics. There should be three or four hours of uh, cultural humility or cultural competence or whatever term they're gonna create that we should be getting those CEUs in uh, because I think it's valuable that we continue to do that and we just don't take it in a singular master's level course or a PhD course. I kind of think it's everyone's responsibility, right? It's university's responsibility where you're getting trained in your coursework. It's almost your supervisor's responsibility to touch on these topics that might be uncomfortable, but it's important to address them. And it's also your responsibility as an ethical practitioner, I think, to have some self-awareness and explore um, how diversity impacts your practice. Absolutely. And I really hope that you pick back up that line of research that you were talking about, because <laughs> I feel like as a field, we used to not stray away from topics just because they were difficult to measure or difficult to study. We used to really just lean into that. And I feel like there's a period of time where we got much more methodological and we steered away from that. And I feel like the pendulum's going back to, let's study these things that are that are really important that might be difficult to study. But like Bear Wolf and Risley said, we shouldn't stray away from them just because they're difficult to study. Uh, we need to lean into that. So I really hope that you pick up that line of research again, because I think it's really needed. Thanks. Yeah, I'm feeling inspired by everything that's going on, which is why I'm going back and looking, okay, what were some research ideas I had at the time that I kind of put aside because I didn't feel like they were quote, like behavior analytic enough in nature. Yeah, and I think that's where people like, I think lots of conceptual pieces are coming out right now. And I think people are really hungry for the application of people to be because it's, I don't think it's lack of desire, but I think people are really looking for that. This is the scripted thing you do. And I think the people that are doing it are going to other fields to get it. They're just picking up things that other, you know, I, I know I think both you, Liz, you and I both referenced the Georgetown cultural competence work that's been happening for years, you know, Center for Cultural Competence. And um, we just go over there and pick up that work and, you know, adapt it to our experiences. And there's things with children with special health care needs there. There's all sorts of things that some of our applied work can do. But I think people are really hungry for, okay, I, I want to be better. I, I know I need to do this and what are the next steps and 
I think there's, most of us are just kind of borrowing from, from the work that's already been, the really great work that's already been done. And I agree that there's definitely more of a hunger. When I started presenting about this in like 2011, maybe two or three people would come to their presentations that I would have. And I'd be speaking like mostly to an empty room, which has its benefits. As I guess like a younger researcher, I was more comfortable only speaking to two or three people. And now when I see people presenting this topic, the rooms are filled. Like people, when we used to have live conferences, we're sitting on the floor and it was exciting to see just the change in, what is that, 10 years, less than 10 years um, that I feel is having. Yeah, I remember um, the first time I presented on cultural humility was 2007 mm-hmm. at a state association. And I remember people were like, well, meh, all right. <laughs> and then I and then I presented a workshop at ABA, I, I think in 2009 and seven people came. <laughs> I was yeah. like, oh, oh, all right, I'm off the mark here. <laughs> and actually, um, one of my colleagues, or two of my colleagues, and I were actually looking at the data from ABAI and APBA, and we're examining the, the trends in diversity topics, and hopefully that will be out, um, I'm going to say in the next year, like six months, we'll see. But the data is there, it's just writing the manuscript. <laughs> we're going to hold you to that commitment. Great. We're going to follow up on it. I'm going to hold you to it. Uh, well, we have some questions rolling in. Um, so I want to make sure we're able to get to those. And so uh, the first one is, should agencies advertise that they are working on being more culturally aware, uh, e.g. they have updated their mission and values and are actually implementing? Oh, well, I have some strong opinions about that, I guess. Um, and I think it's important, right? And if it's important, we should talk about it. But I also, I'm really curious about um, when we think about data is, you know, if it's a annual report or if it's information, it's like, here's, here's the work we're doing to ensure, here's the, here's the demographics of our community. Here's the demographics we're serving. Here's the demographics of the strata of our staff. So we have people in, um, we have people in leadership positions that have autism and represent the communities we serve. We have, you know I mean? I'm, I'm like really, I think it would be amazing to actually be transparent in that way. Um, and you know, cause I think what happens often the data are collapsed and they go, we are representative because our staff is 50% this, gen, you know, this gender and 50% this, you know, ethnicity, race and ethnicity other than white. And then when you dig in, it's all direct support professionals that are pre- representing you know, race and, representing that race and ethnicity other than white. But I, I think, I don't know, I feel like transparency could be an amazing thing. And I don't think it hurts to have, to at least be thinking about your mission statement, but that is not enough. I think I'm caught up in the word advertise and figuring out what that means. Like, is it a blog that your company has where you're discussing um, the proactive steps you're taking to be a more culturally sensitive organization? Or is it on your homepage, you have this like header talking about, we're becoming more culturally competent, click here. You know, I'm not sure about that. I think there are um, organizations like Clinical Paper Analysis who are looking at their mission and values. And I think they're advertising that within the organization, which to me is maybe more important because then the um, employees and independent contractors that you're working with, they can maybe feel invested in the company and if they're in agreement that this is the direction the company can go, they can jump forward and make changes 
um, together versus I don't know um, how much it's going to impact your consumers that you're that you're working and being more culturally aware. I, I don't, I wouldn't care as much as a consumer if, a, if an organization is working to be culturally aware and they're advertising that, I would want to see it when I'm interacting with them, which goes back to working within the organization and advertising that recruiting, you know, different committees to work on things like revising mission statements. Well, Liz, you talked about too, like what are your outreach efforts? So I also think too, it's like, do you need a change mission statement that says we support diversity Right. Or when you go into the events page of that organization, do you go like, oh, look, they're doing the health fair in this part of town. And oh, look, they're tabling this event. And they're, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, they have a scholarship program for people that don't have, you know, the level of financial care that's needed. Or, oh, you know what I mean? I think that there's also ways that you can um, advertise your mm -hmm. support of diversity without saying we're diverse. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that. and I, I'm in agreement with, with what you're saying. That makes a lot of sense to me. I would want to see a place that's advertising it and walking the walk, so to speak, which is exactly what you're describing. Sounds like a, a big focus on the function of it as well, as opposed to just, you know, like you said, the banner on like, why is it there? Um, what is the purpose of it? And I think that's why the advertise piece just feels a little... <laughs> A little icky, you know, because it implies a different type of a function than, you know, one of actual like social change and social justice. Uh, all right, so we have another question. Uh, it is oh, they're they're coming in now. <laughs> um, have either of you worked with agencies on improving this content and awareness with staff or clients? After you. <laughs> so. Um, so I first got interested in this when I shared like many years ago, um, I went to work uh, at the Special Education Service Agency of Alaska in rural and remote villages, supporting primarily Native Alaskan children to, with developmental disabilities to access their education. And that agency was amazing in making sure that I knew kind of and had resources and information about serving that population. You know, I had to study the Alaska Native Claims Act that when we stole the land from Alaskan natives in my lifetime, you know, it's like, I, I was, it was very, very much um, there. We had parent liaisons, we had all those, you know, that organization knew that we were working cross-culturally and that it was my work that I was required to do that agency also required us to have 20% of our time in professional development. So we had to document 20% of our time, not just in cultural competence, but in across lots of things. So they also, they dedicated our, our productivity rate to making sure that we knew what we were doing. And so, you know, I think that was, I, I feel like that was an organization, um, but I also think that organization was formed from a class action lawsuit on behalf of Alaska Natives on accessing education. So I think there was like, it was, it was set up to meet the needs of a population that was underserved and under-resourced. So I think that's probably my best example in my history of an organization that was incredibly committed to doing the right thing when you have a workforce that may not be super understanding of the culture they're working in. 
Um, and I actually have worked with agencies and am working with agencies on improving the content and awareness with their staff. So that looks different depending on, on what the agency is, but sometimes it's creating guidelines or revising mission statements. Sometimes it's providing professional development to the staff. Um, but I have, and I, and I think it's I think it's a good first step to do the professional development. And then it's, okay, how do we apply this? So similar to going to conferences and you get inspired by the presenters, that's a great first step. Now take that fire and now apply it to, you know, your clinic setting. Uh, I, wonderful examples. And, and I think that thoroughly answers the question. So I'm not going to add anything else because you all are the experts on this. And, and give us an opportunity to jump into the, the next question. Uh, it's, it's a long one, so I'm going to take it bit by bit. Um, it starts with, I'm curious how to address power imbalances if you have a client who, due to their culture, will never disagree with a professional, um, like someone with a PhD or a master's. And then there's an example. Um, so for example, you suggest a behavior protocol that they don't want to implement, but they won't tell you, um, even if you encourage them to challenge your suggestions. Uh, how might we handle this delicate of an issue? Um, I have two initial thoughts. So one would be looking at rapport. So do you have a good rapport with the family that you're working with where it might be their culture where they can't disagree with you, but maybe uh, it can be not a disagreement, but they feel like they can have a conversation and maybe it's a communication style. So instead of me telling you or suggesting to you a behavior protocol, like maybe let's sit down and write it together or have them go first. You tell me like what you can do, what's reasonable, what you'd like to see. And then based on your initial input, then I can give my input on top of that. Um, so I think those are my two initial initial thoughts. <laughs> yeah, I was my first thought was co-create, right? So like how did you get there? How did you get there? Like when you get into that situation, you realize like, oh, this person is just deferring to me on everything. How how do I get them back in the power position? How do I get them telling me what to do on things? How do I like on things that maybe are, you know, would be so that I'm not in that really odd. Like, how is it that I, that they're deferring to me because of education, um, which really in, may not be the most important aspect of the situation. So how did I create that? How did I, you know, that's kind of this, that's kind of the humility part of like, wow, how did I end up here um, to try to evaluate that? And then I think co-creation is, is great because that way it's not, it's not a, it's not a telling, it's a, a sharing or, you know, those things are, because you're, it's a, we often do that, right? We just have that content expertise. So um, we end up just jumping in and it's like, but that's not what they're asking us. They're asking us to help families help their kids. So I, I can't actually tell them if they're, that, that, that won't get me where I'm supposed to. And a lot of times like I'll explicitly say like, you're actually the expert when it comes to dealing with, you know, whoever it is, like your sister, your brother, your parent, your child. So I need your expertise in order for us to work together and try to um, create a behavior protocol that's going to work for your family. And I think this goes back to the social validity piece. Are we getting the social validity from our clients that we need? Would, um, would offering, in addition to, I love the idea of the co-creating, um, 
what are your feelings on also offering choices as opposed to suggesting this behavior protocol, but to talk about a wide variety of different options to potentially address whatever the, the problem is at hand? You just don't know if one of any of those, any of those are preferred, right? So like, I think that Liz's idea of like, can I get that person to start? So if we're going to, if we're going to suggest something that's, that even, you know, it was, we possess, cause we're limited by our own perspective, right? So we suggest four things and they're like, yeah, I'll do all of them. It's like, oh, now I've backed myself into a worse corner. Cause then uh, the other piece too is like, now you've also created a situation where if they do none of them and their child doesn't improve, then you have parental, some pretty significant parental like guilt or, you know, all those other things that can happen. So I think you have to like, it, you have to let some of the control that we all love in clinical situations, <laughs> you have to let some of that control go um, of, you know, asking, asking questions um, and taking their, their lead. So we're good shapers, you know how to shape. So I think with that also, and I agree with everything that was said, is clinicians also have to be looking for other cues where parents might be uncomfortable. And so they might be uh, verbally saying, vocal verbally saying, uh, yeah, go do it, I trust you, whatever. But there should be other indicators that maybe they're not comfortable. I think that goes to uh, Liz's comment about building rapport, which is a must, is you starting to learn um, those kind of indicators, nonverbal cues or whatever, or not doing a protocol or not following through with a protocol or whatever it may be, uh, we really need to be doing a better job paying attention to that uh, with everything else that you say, because that will, that will give us big indication if something's not meshing well with the two, the two parties. And I think like, especially now with COVID where parents are being asked to do so much that I think it's important to come across as understanding and collaborative because I have no idea what a lot of people are dealing with right now under these restrictions. And I know I want you to take data and I know that's really important. And if it comes like week after week and you're not collecting the data and you know, let's pretend everything else went perfectly. Like I've trained you, we have IOA, all that stuff. I think that you have to have the rapport to be able to go back and talk to the family, figure out what's going on, not um, have the family feel like you're judging them for not following through, which I know is what I've seen with a lot of the families I've worked with and um, just kind of problem solve it together. To, to borrow from another field too, I just think that this is, I, I have leaned on these people on many occasion of, um, you know, the, from a Spanish aspect, it's called, they're called promotoras, lay health workers, um, individuals, parent liaisons. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because we don't necessarily have that within our infrastructure, but, you know, thinking about agency structures or resources that we should be asking for, they're used in public health a lot. And there actually are funding resources for lay health workers within lots of infrastructures around, you know, engagement with communities. And, you know, I, I might say something to a family and they're like, yeah, that white middle-aged lady is, you know, I'm not doing that. Whereas a lay health worker may be able to deliver that same concept in a completely different way um, because they're of the culture and they understand and they can convey, maybe they also have a child with a disability that they've been through the same experience. And you know they are able to convey information in a way that I just cannot. And so I think that's also another, like you give up your control. I'm using a term like lay health worker. That may be someone who doesn't have formal education. That may be somebody who 
you know, it's like, and I'm absolutely going to give them my power um, to do this work because they can help that family. If it's something that really, um, there's been a lot of work related to um, initial evaluations and initial referrals for autism with lay health workers that they're more likely to get a referral and a diagnosis. So there's a lot we can do and um, lots of, you know, lots of things that, that we can build capacity around using lay health workers. And it sounds a little bit of like cultural brokering, what you're having the lay health worker do, right? They're the expert in um, this background, we're the expert in behavior analysis, and that lay health worker is going to be able to bridge and like and mediate between these worlds of behavior analysis and non-behavior analytic populations. I love that term. I've never said culturally brokering out loud until right now, but now I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to say Liz Fong taught me how to say cultural brokering. <laughs> taking it. I, I love it. I love it. I, I'm learning so much here and I, I'm pretty sure that everyone here listening is, is learning an awful lot too. So I appreciate you both you know, sharing your expertise on this because uh, I think it we all have a lot of room to grow. Uh, and I guess now that we're getting close to the end, uh, I have a, a question for both of you about um, if someone were to listen to this and, and they could only take away one thing uh, in terms of developing their cultural competence or um, the cultural humility. Um, what would you like them to take away? And I can talk some more to give you some more time to think about the answer to that. <laughs> no, but if I go life. first, then Liz is gonna have a really smart answer and then I'm gonna feel <laughs> <laughs> I go back to kind of where we started and I just think about, um, you know, what I want to take away is we all have, we all have biases. We, we have to, you have to go into your, your individual identity. And that's your first thing is like, look at your own biases, inspect them and what are they doing to your practice and then start the work. Right. But I think that like, that's the one thing I could say is like, what, what are your biases and how are they impacting you as a professional to not do the best work? Because that's not what we want to be. That's not who any of us want to be. So you know, do that. Do that inspection and that ongoing inspection. Commit your resources and time to doing that inspection. Be it reading, um, be it you know, journaling of gosh, wow, this is the racist behavior I just engaged in today. Be it exposing it to others because that's a punishment procedure. I mean, like what? Do you, like how do you address those things? That would be the one thing I think because I think that's something that we should all do on a really regular basis. I'm just digesting everything that you said, which I agree with, and it was very well said. And I don't think, I don't know if I have one thing. I think that this topic is so complex that, you know, at first my initial thought was to be kind to yourself and understand this is a lifelong process. So it's not something that you're gonna be able to accomplish today. And then the other part of me was thinking like, um, learn to be uncomfortable and because I think that's a lot of what I've experienced you, you know you mispronouncing people's names not knowing the social norms of situations and I think that from these uncomfortable situations is how we grow which then goes back to what Pat was saying about being able to be self-aware and acknowledge these experiences and then um, grow and become better practitioners. 
I love it. I love it. I, I was texting Joe, uh, like because we take turns on who's going to ask different questions in the box. <laughs> and I, this hour went by really fast for us. Uh, it's like, fast. Uh, I looked up the clock and it's like, oh, it's already two o'clock or time. Uh, the hour, the hour is up. So we really enjoyed it. It was, uh, I have tons of notes on it. I was scribbling. I hope I can read my writing, trying to keep up, keep up. But the good thing is I have the recording so I can always just uh, play it back and listen whenever I want. Uh, thank you guys so very much for coming today. I think it's going to be really uh, valuable for anyone that listens to this and valuable for the audience in some an area where there's growth. And I, I assume and hope there will be more growth uh, as the years go by and uh, once as we get back to actual conferences and can actually see each other face to face. As I always say, you know, these uh, these podcasts, podcasts, uh, Rants with Justin Joe is free, uh, but if you can donate and are in a position to, we would really appreciate it. It lets us do some of our uh, different outreaches, like our free RBT training, which has, Joe, do you know how many people we've signed up for? I think it's 115,000 at this point. 115,000. That's really hard to believe, but 115,000 people have gotten training or uh, for free. And so um, this kind of donations help support that, help support research uh, in the United States and throughout the world. I know Joe is working on a manuscript in, uh, uh, for Hong Kong and for uh, SESs uh, who are lower and so uh, in Hong Kong. So any donation does help uh, kind of the work in our mission of Autism Partnership Foundation. So I'll let Joe do the closing. All right, so if you want CEUs for this rant, you can purchase or download your certificate at www, I feel like an infomercial, at www.autismpartnershipfoundation.org forward slash podcast. Uh, just put in the opening and closing words. Uh, the closing word for this one is compassion. Uh, add, the, add it to your cart, uh, answer the questions about the keywords, and then you have a CEU for this one. Uh, thank you both for being here. I feel like we, we need to schedule another one um, because an hour is just not long enough. Uh, and I think there's a lot more knowledge that I would like to extrapolate from you both. Um, so I feel like we need like an eight hour rant or like a 40 hour rant <laughs> um, so we can really dig in a little bit deeper into these topics. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we are off until December... December 1st, uh, we're going to have, December. Yep. where we'll be having Noah and he will be sharing his experience uh, with autism. So we look forward to whoever wants to come to that rant uh, on December 1st. Everybody stay safe. And though it's not the keyword, wear masks. <laughs> masks help. Yes, socially distance. Yeah. Especially with holidays coming up. Absolutely. Thank you both of you for coming on to Rants with Justin and Joe. Bye everybody. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you both for coming, it was amazing. All right, bye guys. Bye. bye.